Hello audio friends and welcome to the latest episode of The Abby Khan Show. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest. David Nolan is the head performance coach at Rugby Academy Ireland. He is the founder of Synapse Performance and also a research and development officer at Uplift. David is also a PhD candidate focusing on weight cutting protocols in strength sports. Today we're going to talk about training, rugby union specific training, but it can apply to a lot of different sports, especially the thought processes and the, and the protocols that we chat about. We're going to talk about off-season training, pre-season, in-season, what the differences are and what the differences are in terms of protocols and why those protocols are specific and important. We're also going to talk about adaptation, what happens from a physiological perspective and how that practically can apply to you when you are trying to create adaptations and therefore improve performance. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with David Nolan. You're listening to The Abby Khan Show, a podcast that inspires people to achieve what they once believed was impossible. My name's Abby Khan. I'm an actor, health and fitness coach, and it is my mission to connect with interesting people, share their stories, find out how they optimize their lives for success, and how you can do the same. It is my pleasure to introduce you guys to Mr. David Nolan. David, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. It's a pleasure, Abby. I'm honored to be here. Mate, just for the people that may not know who you are, can you give us a little bit of the highlight reel of your story so far? Yeah, no problem. So I suppose I work straddling. I try to straddle both academia and applied practice. So I work as a sports science consultant, strength and conditioning coach and um, researcher. So from the academic side, my undergrad would have been sport and exercise science, went on into the research field and currently pursuing a PhD in Dublin City University under Dr. Brendan Egan. So my areas of research interest, I look at rapid weight loss strategies for strength sports and combat sports so how people make weight for their competition i look at muscle mass quality and quantity in the older adults so i look at how we enhance and preserve muscle quality in people as the age to preserve um, function and quality of life and then the third area of research of interest is something called um, reproducibility and heterogeneity of response so that sounds complicated but essentially what i look at is if I give the same training stimulus or nutrition stimulus to two people, the exact same, why do I not see the exact same results for people? So what drives the differences between people? So I look at that through a number of different factors, um, biological sex-based differences um, between male and female, and then uh, other maybe genetic and um, environmental factors that may influence and um, cause a differentiation in the response to training. So that's what I do from a research perspective. From an applied perspective, I said I work as a sports science consultant. So I help different organizations and companies kind of enhance and streamline their athletic performance programs. And I also help um, some sports tech companies integrate sports science technology into their software and their products. The most notable of those companies being Applift, who I'm currently the research and development officer for. Um, from the SNC side of things, I'm currently the head of performance at Rugby Academy Ireland, so I look after the sports science and athletic development program there. And then on top of that, I have my own company, Synapse Performance, that is the consultancy part of the company, but also a coaching company. I have several coaches that work under me and are 
work with me, I should say, rather than work under me. And then we have an educational content branch to the company. So we run different workshops and short courses. So everything between that's kind of a mix. I like to keep my work varied. So straddling both the academic and the applied side of things. And what got you into that specific field of study? Um, It's a good question. Um, I suppose I would have been... I've always been naturally inquisitive in terms, so I knew science was going to be an avenue I went down. And then I suppose my adolescent years, I got quite sporty and got involved in different sports and got more interested in the why behind behind adaptation to exercise, I suppose. I just found it intriguing about, and I still to this day find the adaptability of the human body intriguing. Like, for, for personally, I've gone from field-based sports, um, martial arts background, very, what would you say, aerobic, anaerobic dominant sports, transitioned then into powerlifting, competitive powerlifting for a few years, still something I do, but then started integrating back into more endurance styles, some trail running, returning back to field-based sports. So I find it fascinating how the body will adapt to those different scenarios and will change pretty much everything about it. I've gone up and down I suppose you could say anywhere between about 25 kilos up and down over the last couple of years depending on what condition I need my body to be in for the specific demands of the event I was doing at the time so I I just find that fascinating I suppose that naturally led me into kind of the sports science field of understanding the capabilities and capacities of the human body. So when we're looking at at performance, I wanted to talk about athletic performance specifically in the off season. Obviously, this is going to be very relevant to the position, the player. Um, but what does a typical off season look like? What are the main focus points? Are we looking at to build strength and power, less hypertrophy? What does a training block, I guess, look like in the off season? Yeah, well, as you said, it's going to be very sport specific, depending on the athlete and the sport. But I suppose to give a broad overview, you have your your main season, your off season, then you're going to have your pre-season and then your competitive season if we want to split into those three main areas. So I generally can couple the off season and pre-season relatively together. In the off season, what I look for athletes to do or what our main focus is, is to maintain or improve body composition. That's probably the one of the biggest factors that we want to do there. We don't want our athletes going away and getting fat or getting to excessive levels of body fat because we only end up spending then the pre-season, which should be a time when we're really forcing new adaptations and getting to higher levels of athletic performance. We want to ideally come into the pre-season in and around the same fitness level that or just below that we ended the competitive season with. Because what we want to do is we can maintain relatively the same amount of um, fitness. Then in the pre-season, we should elevate it and push to a higher level than we finished the last competitive season with. We couple that together for a few years and we keep seeing the level going up. What we don't want to see is a dramatic decrease in performance capacity in the off-season. Because if we get to the pre-season and we're literally just spending six or eight weeks catching up to where we were at the end of the past season, we're going in into in-season then at the same level we were the year previous. And for most athletes, I think that's a wasted opportunity where year on year, for the predominant years of your career, when you get to the tail end of your career, it's not going to be the case. But for the majority of athletes in the early stage and intermediate stages of your career, 
we want to gauge that at a specific point in the season, at a specific point of the year, that they're at a higher level than they were at that same point the year previous. If that is not the case, we have to ask ourselves the question, why that's not the case. And the only acceptable reason for that is they've peaked at. They're at their highest they're ever going to be, in my opinion. So that's uh, that's the first thing. We want to maintain the fitness as best we can. And how we do that is, it's, it's very sport specific. But generally, the body composition is the big thing. That's going to have a huge influence on performance. Because if they come back completely out of shape, carrying extra weight, that means we have to put them into a calorie deficit that in itself is going to decrease performance at a time when we want to be driving adaptation. So that's not optimal. So I try to keep them at a good body composition in the off-season. Another pillar of the off-season is dealing with any injuries. We want to, any niggle, little niggles, because most athletes will always be carrying a knock or two, and especially within the sports I work with, in combat sports and rugby specifically, all athletes are nearly always carrying some degree of an injury or minor knock. So the off-season is a time when we try to focus on healing and prehabbing and rehabbing those type of injuries so that they come into the next pre-season and competitive season fresh as they possibly can with minimal amount of injuries. So that's what we'll do there. And the other um, component of the off-season that I like to focus on is I really like my athletes to take up a different sport or a different modality of fitness. So if it's my rugby guys and girls, I might ask them to consider getting into cycling or um swimming or something like that if they're solo if they're more into solo sports ideally they're probably team they like the team dynamic so i like them to take up sports such as squash is a great thing say something like squash tennis basketball these sports that challenge their bodies in different movement patterns than they're used to so we're exposing the joints ligaments and tendons to different force vectors so that in itself is reducing our um, risk factor of injury because we're exposing um, them to different movement patterns they're able to maintain their fitness um, these are highly aerobic and anaerobic dominant sports um, and especially if they're doing it with someone else that they can get competitive they, they'll tend to push themselves a bit harder and probably the most important um, thing, I get them to do a sport that they enjoy, that there's a social element to it or that they get a real amount of enjoyment because essentially their, their main sport is their job. And yes, they love it, but all of us that are lucky enough to work in careers that we love, we still need a break from it from time to time. You know, we Even if you're passionate and love it, you don't, don't want to think and be immersed in it 24-7. So it gives these athletes a chance to break away from the sport, get a mental um, break from the sport. And then different sports is going to challenge them mentally in different ways. So it gets them better decision makers. And we even see that with some of the research from um, early specialization. We see that in general for most sports, athletes who did a myriad of sports in their youth tend to perform better than those that just stuck to the one sport the, the whole way up. Um, so yeah, they're, they're the main pillars that I like to keep in place over the off season. Um, if you want, we can dig into kind of some of the what would you say the what we do in the preseason then, which I think is is what you're referring to. Then what are our, our priorities? Um, and please feel free to stop me if I'm rabbiting <laughs> at any point, Abby. But um, no, it's brilliant. What I want to say is that of with the trying different. I love that that take. I think it's 
brilliant and very, very unique. Do you think that sometimes the the different stimulus, say, for example, going from rugby union, going to a game like basketball or squash because the different dynamics, new movement patterns that can almost have a, a positive effect when they come back to to playing rugby union because their their motor neurons, their learning's very, very, I guess, different. So they can utilize a, a, a quote unquote different movement pattern, but in the same spot. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, I think people tend to forget that you can take skills from certain sports and apply them to other. If we take the context of rugby, the Irish rugby team are quite well known for their kicking and catching ability, the ability under the high ball. And that more than likely stems from a lot of the Irish rugby players would have in their youth played Gaelic games, which is similar to um, Australian rules football. So similar kind of style with a lot of handling the ball, high catching above the head. And the, these skills have obviously translated and they've applied them in a unique context, in a rugby context. And that, that can be taken from any sport. It's it's the real good athletes will see something in another sport and see a different way of moving potentially or see how someone creates space or moves in an advantageous way. And good athletes can even subconsciously pick that up and translate it into, into their game. And there's a lot of, say how would you say, hobbies or sports that if athletes engage in can transfer and wouldn't really be too cognizant of it or wouldn't be aware of it. Say, for example, rock climbing. If someone in their off-season likes a bit of rock climbing, indoor rock climbing, if they're a rugby player, that's great on a couple of different levels. The two main ones um, I encourage people to engage in indoor rock climbing for is grip strength, first and foremost, which is very valuable in in rugby and um, a lot of other sports. And then also mobility. A lot of people tend to just view mobility as stretching and these type of things. But if you see anyone that's a good rock climber, your hands are in a certain position and then you have to stretch the leg out. But what you you don't, it's not just about getting the leg into position. You, you have to get the leg into a, this is oftentimes a very awkward position, but then generate force from that position. You have to be able to get tension into the muscle and generate force from an uh, what would you say an inefficient or very awkward angle, and all these um, new skills that they learn, they may not. There's an argument that they may not transfer directly across the sport, but I don't believe that they're ever going to have a negative performance or negative effect uh, on the sport if the athletes are engaging in this because. Essentially, even when it comes to S and C, there's going to be some differences, but generally we're just building strong, powerful, fast, robust athletes that can move well. And then it's allowed them to go on to the, the pitch and practice the skills of their sport and learn how to express those physical qualities in a skill-based task within their sport. And what does a nutrition look like in the off-season? Are we looking to drive up uh, calories into a potential surplus just to improve performance, um, recovery, things of that nature? Well, in the off-season is going to be the time where you want to make your drastic body composition changes. So if you are someone, so if we have determined for an athlete that one of their limiting factors in their performance is their body composition, that's holding them back. Be that that they don't have enough lean tissue, they don't have enough muscle mass, or that they're carrying excess body fat. The off-season is where we're predominantly going to want to make those significant changes in body composition. Because in either of those scenarios, to make those significant changes it likely will impede the ability for adaptation to a certain degree or the ability to perform well in the sport. And why I say that, if we take fat loss for perspective, we know that 
in order to reduce body mass and reduce fat tissue, we have to be in a sustained calorie deficit. Now, that means that we're taking in less calories than we're expending. By definition, putting ourselves into a calorie um, deficit, we're causing an energy crisis. But some of the associated factors with that are not um, supportive of the adaptations that we may want for the sport. For example, when we go into a calorie deficit, we are putting ourselves at an elevated risk of decreased performance, um, decreased, and that's both within, say, gym performances, training performances, match performances, um, increased injury risk, and um, increased, we're potentially seeing some immunosuppression there and seeing increased um, risk of catching um, infections and colds and viruses. And especially if it's a time where if we try to couple the calorie deficit with a drastic increase in training volume and training demands, we're kind of asking ourselves, putting ourselves into a hole there. So that's why that's something, a calorie deficit doesn't seem to be something that's suitable for or something that we want to ideally avoid in the pre-season and competitive season. So that's why we'll place that in the off-season, um, ideally. And the same is, um, can be said for the other side of the spectrum if we want to increase muscle mass, increase size. Beyond a certain point, so yes, in the first few years of training and most of these players have good genetics if they get to the elite level, so they're genetically predisposed to adapting well to training. They will increase muscle mass without too much effort in um, their adolescence and early 20s. But after a few years of training, when someone's training age increases, it gets it's, it's a bit of um, one of the, how would you say, unfortunate realities of resistance training and muscle gain that the longer you do it, the more work is required for less return on investment. So with these players, if we, look in, if we are looking to increase their muscle mass, that's going to require a significant volume and a, a gradual increase in volume of quite intense muscle or quite intense resistance training. Do we know for these athletes that they're going to be pushing heavy weights, they're going to be building up a lot of fatigue, um, potentially a good bit of muscle soreness. All of these factors, if we want them to be performing the best they can in the pitch, in matches, we don't want them to have built up a lot of fatigue and muscle damage and muscle soreness. So the, what would you say, the side effects or consequences of the training you have to do to induce muscle hypertrophy can potentially decrease the performance um, that we see with our guys in training, guys and girls. And similarly, you can argue that if an athlete has experienced DOMS, they have muscle damage, that that in itself puts them at an elevated risk of injury then during training because if they're sore, they might be altering their movement patterns and might be moving in a way that might open them up to some musculoskeletal injury. So again, if we're looking to see significant increases in muscle mass, that is done ideally in the off-season and also in the pre-season then when performance is maybe not the key metric that we're looking to chase adaptation rather than performance. Awesome. So we've just come off this successful off-season. We've either maintained or improved body composition if athletes uh, need to drop that uh, that body weight, recover of injuries, niggles, things of that nature. We've uh, recommended going in different sports, improve movement patterns, give yourself a bit of a break as well. So what does the next phase of pre-season look like in terms of training? Yeah, so then we move into our pre-season and this is where we want to do the majority of our high-quality work. This is where we're really chasing adaptations that want we want to improve our athletic performance. So 
generally you see people and there's this mentality is we need to get better at everything all the time so all the time we're needing to be getting stronger faster more powerful fitter everything like this where i think that that in itself can end up being somewhat of a cyclic trap in terms of there's certain times when my athletes are fit enough they don't need to improve their rope capacity anymore for this given sport for what i need them to do they do not need to get fitter would they potentially see a performance benefit if they got even a little bit fitter maybe uh, i don't know but the amount of work that need would need to be put in to develop that trait that marginal bit more i can place into another area that's a real limiting factor there so generally what i like to do instead of just trying to get everyone better at everything all the time for the given sport or the given athletes i like to have um kind of brackets that i like my athletes to get into so it's not that i just want you to keep getting faster at your say one kilometer time trial or whatever it is it's okay for you uh, and you can do this on an individual level if you have enough data on your athletes or you can do it just on a team-based level or position-based level if you're taking some normative value say from the literature or something like that where i will set target ranges where i want my athletes to fall in so it could be whatever tests i'm using be it one rm velocity based tests or a one kilometer time trial or something like this i'd say okay we need you to be within this bracket say for 1k running between a 330 and a 340 once you get into that bracket we'll look to so we'll keep looking to force the adaptation say if we take aerobic capacity and we're using the 1k time trial as our gauge of aerobic capacity so i will keep training and overloading and putting significant work into my athletes in the area of aerobic conditioning until that we get them to a level that we're happy with and that for this case might be the proxy value of getting between the 330 and 341k time once i have them within that bracket i will often drastically reduce the amount of work i've put into developing that trait to reduce the volume in that area because inducing adaptations and driving adaptations is much more difficult and time intensive than maintaining an adaptation once you get to a certain level of fitness or a physical trait it's generally quite easy to maintain that adaptation once you have elicited it so i'll generally get them to a certain area and then say okay and it depends on whether we're looking at a short or a long-term vision if it's a long-term vision where i'm saying okay at this stage of the season i need my athletes to be hitting these traits here and hitting these numbers in terms of physical performance then i might say okay i know for a certain physical trait that it takes x number of weeks to induce that trait so we know that we can see increases in aerobic capacity quite quick and um, repeat sprintability quite quick we know that hypertrophy takes longer so if it's the case i need someone to be at that hypertrophy level at that part of the season I know I can reverse engineer on the time scale how long it would take for that ad- adaptation to come in. And when you think that way, you can start sacrificing um, certain traits. Be, for example, say you want a certain hypertrophy goal six months down the line, but you also want an aerobic capacity goal that six months down the line. And we see that both hypertrophy and aerobic capacity are below where we want it to be in six months' time. Now, do I do equal amount of aerobic work with equal amount of hypertrophy work? I could do that and chase the two adaptations at one time. Or I might say, okay, hypertrophy takes a lot longer to induce. 
aerobic capacity can be enhanced in a relatively short period of time. So for the next couple of months, I'm not going to do a whole lot of aerobic capacity work. I'll do a little bit just to keep it where it is or slightly improve it, but predominantly going to pump all my efforts into the hypertrophy because I've identified that as one of the limiting factors in this athlete's success. So you could do that predominantly for the three months and then as you approach, okay, I know that aerobic capacity will only take X number of weeks to get to where I want. So now we'll scale down the hypertrophy a little bit, keep it going, but we put a bulk of work into it, got 90% of where we need to be. And now for the next three months, we'll push the aerobic capacity side of stuff and allow hypertrophy take a backseat and progress at a slower rate. Where if you had flipped that the other way around and said, okay, I'm going to work it on my aerobic capacity for three months and do a little hypertrophy, you haven't left yourself enough time at the end to build up the hypertrophy um, adaptations then. So you have to think about it in terms of both the long-term vision of where you need to be and where you want to get your athletes over the course of a training cycle or multiple training cycles in years. And then that's how I do my long-term planning in terms of my short-term planning. And this is, especially when we start getting into the competitive season type of stuff, I tend to think a lot more about my short-term planning where I will often say to myself, for this given athlete, let's say now our next competitive um, match or our next milestone is in five weeks' time, we'll say. I'll say to myself, for this given athlete, what is their... I've heard the term kind as uh, MILF. What is their MILF? And this is their most important limiting factor. So for this given athlete, what factor or what training quality or physical quality is currently their most limiting factor so if i am what quality that if i improve it over the next five weeks it's going to lead to the biggest enhancement of their performance so there are times where we might say look this athlete needs to be both fitter and more powerful now yes we can work and enhance both but i'll often say to myself okay what is the most important factor? So what is, if I was only allowed to improve one quality, which quality would probably lead to the biggest increase in performance? And that then frames it straight in my head. I have a number one priority. Then I say to them, okay, after that, what's the second limiting factor? And then you start to build a hierarchy of for your athlete, what are their limiting factors and what ones, if you improve, will lead to the biggest increase in performance? So then you end up building a nice picture that, Okay, you can see in the long term, over the course of um, months and years, these are the qualities and ranges that I want to get my athletes to. But then also in the short term, I know that to increase short-term performance, these are the qualities I need to work on. And then whether you choose to work on something in terms of the long-term vision or the short-term vision, that comes down to you know, how important is the next performance? What are the managers saying? How important is this game? Because there's some games and competitions that are throwaways. We're saying, okay, they're going to be competing here, but it's not that important to us. How they perform isn't really that important and key to the overall picture. In that case, I'm not going to sacrifice the long-term vision for the sake of short-term performance benefits. In that stage, I'll say, okay, no, we've bigger fish to fry down the road. So again, but that is going to be very different depending on the game the scenario competitive level the management you work with all these factors but that's generally how i kind of currently anyway before i realize i'm completely wrong and have to <laughs> rethink my whole ethos but that's currently how i frame my um and conceptualize my planning i suppose for athletic development 
No, perfect. I love that. I love that thought process. I also love the MILF reacronym of the MILF. <laughs> I, I specifically had to write the, the, the acronym and the actual explanation down because otherwise I'll look at these notes and go, what the fuck were we talking about? There. <laughs> um, so what does nutrition look like in, in the preseason? Is that where we're, um, as we're looking to drive up adaptation, looking to go at that maintenance level, potentially surplus? Are you are you still looking to sit in a slight deficit to not put on anybody to or as much mitigate so that? This, this again will be dependent on what condition the athlete shows up mm. in, a, in the term preseason. Ideally, in an ideal scenario, our athletes will turn up within the ideal body fat percentage range or ideal body composition range. Because if the purpose of the preseason is to drive adaptation as much as we can, we want to get our athlete fitter, faster, stronger, more powerful, all that good stuff. We know that being at maintenance at least, or even a slight surplus, given um, a slight excess of energy, that's arguably going to be the most conducive to driving adaptations. We know that a calorie deficit, I don't think a logical argument can be made that if we're trying to recover better, train more, increase training volume, increase muscle hypertrophy, size and strength, I don't think an argument can be made that a calorie deficit is the best environment or a better environment than maintenance or surplus in order to do that. Now, if the athlete has shown up and we've identified, look, body composition is one of their biggest limiting factors. Uh, they need just to get leaner well then that athlete or group of athletes will go into a calorie deficit for the preseason. but in an ideal world no we'd want to be at maintenance or slight surplus given that excess energy given the body its best um, environment to recover well and adapt positively perfect so now we're on to the the adaptations have been driven now we're on to the actual in-season work what does that look like from a training perspective? How much do you low, do you low, go for the, the lower volume approach, lower intensity approach, a combination of both? What does that look like? Um, again, so it's, it's, it's going to be much lower than in the preseason, obviously, because we have that shift where preseason, as I said, is all about adaptation. You know, if, if in the middle of preseason, the guys or girls went out and played a match and weren't performing all that well, I don't really care because... I'm trying to drive these adaptations by and by the fact of that they're doing a high training load, a lot of volume, a lot of intense work, their fatigue is going to be higher. And we know that we have the fitness fatigue model that um, Bannister created. And we know that when we do any sort of training, we actually we see our fitness or adaptation positively improve positively from the outset. Um, but the reason that we see after training people's performance decrease it's not that they've got weaker per se or had a negative adaptation because you have this idea that you know you train you see a negative adaptation then you see a super compensation the actually the positive benefits start off straight away people positive um the adaptations go in a positive direction straight away after training the problem is you just can't see the expression of those improvements because it's masked by the fatigue the higher training volume also causes positive adaptations, but also causes a lot of fatigue at a um, systemic level and at a local level within the muscles as well. And that is why you can't perform better after training than you would have, say, at the start of the session. Um, so that that is what we want to see where, and that's why, say, middle of pre-season, the athletes actually might feel a bit worse, beat up, tired, not moving well. But then when we recover, we bring down the training load 
their um, fatigue dissipates and we see the improved adaptations then get expressed as, as improved performances. So that's why the preseason is all about driving those adaptations. We don't really care about performance. When we get in season, that's when we're playing matches, that when we have to win. That's when we don't really care about the athletes. Not that we don't care, but it's not one of our main priorities about driving adaptation anymore. It's more so about maintaining the adaptations that we've achieved within the preseason and maybe accepting that any improvements in adaptation is going to then occur at a slower rate a slower positive rate in the in-season than it did in the pre-season by the fact that we have to allow them to recover for matches, that we want them to be performing the best they can for matches. And we know that neuromuscular recovery is going to take anywhere between 24 to 72 hours on average, depending on the intensity and volume of a session. So, you know, for most athletes, game day minus one and minus two are going to be lighter sessions. The game day minus one is going to be very light, might be just a light skills-based session on the pitch, a team run or whatever it may be. Two days before tends to be, it's going to be lower volume, maybe power-based sessions. So we will see a lot less um, training volume within season. Now we still, you can still do quite a lot of training in season and perform well. Like generally you're going to have your game day on your Saturday or Sunday. Game day plus one, tends to be recovery focused and especially in a high collision sport like rugby or combat sports I'm involved in there's a lot of ache and a lot of bruising so they're going to be your active recovery days we're just looking to get into the gym move around get moving if my athletes are feeling fresh and good yeah I'll let them lift heavy go whatever they need to do based upon the both the subjective and objective data we get back from them but then you know you're going to have your that'll say be your Sunday or your Monday your Tuesday or Wednesday, they're the days you can really go in hard then with the training. So they're the days you're going to push your volume, your intensity. So you're going to do a lot of your hard running, a lot of your um, heavy um, strength-based work, hypertrophy-based work, if that's something we're focusing on. Then generally, you're, say, if we're preparing for a game on a Saturday, your Thursday is going to be much more um, a power-based day, bringing the intensity down, volume down. Friday, then you're getting more into your um, just getting the athletes moving around, preparing, getting ready for the game on the Saturday. Interspersed between that, you're going to have two to three. Ideally, you should have two to three um, sprint sessions a week. Very not high volume at all. Just uh, essentially microdosing sprinting and high speed running in during the week because for a number of reasons, um, I think it's undervalued in sports. Actual maximal intense sprinting is a great risk factor reduction for injury. So it's very protective. It seems to be very protective about uh, against injury and um, the ability to high speed run. And also, sprinting and speed development is very much a skill. So we can get as strong as we like. And a lot of athletes, we know that increase in strength is likely going to have a positive effect on speed. But what we tend to see is athletes focus all their efforts on getting stronger, but never learn to express that new higher force capacity in the form of sprinting. Like if you want to get better at sprinting what's going to have the most transference is the act of sprinting itself. Yeah. So athletes don't really practice it um, enough. So two to three high speed. And this is only, I call it microdose. Well, not I call it, it's called microdosing. And that's just a couple of sprints, you know, expose the body to it, expose the musculature, neuromuscular system, ligaments, tendons, all that to this maximal um, intense sprinting. That'll have both a protective, hopefully a protective effect against injury and also improved durability to um, engage in sprinting 
and improve the skill of sprinting then that hopefully will transfer to increase speed and moving capacity in the match. So I suppose that's a general outline of how uh, I would structure an in-season um, protocol. And I suppose the other thing that changes from in-season to pre-season is our recovery strategies in terms of the pillars of recovery and the most important aspects of recovery will always be your training load management so that's the number one thing a lot of people get bogged down in the other factors but the most significant influencing factor on the fatigue and recovery status of an athlete is training load by definition if you do more training than you recover from you than you can recover from then it doesn't matter what recovery strategies you're using you're just simply training too much and exposing the body to too much stress now a caveat to that is very few people actually ever do that. It's the body can tolerate quite a lot. A few people rarely push themselves into that overtraining syndrome. But that's the number one factor is your training load management. That's what you need to assess. But then the main pillars will always hold true. It's always going to be sleep, nutrition, and stress management for me are the three main areas. So, you know, good sleep quantity and quality, good nutrition with sufficient calories and proteins coming in and micronutrients. And then stress management, I think, is the big one that people forget that your, your body is a maximal adaptive stress capacity. So there's a maximum amount of stress that your body can positively adapt to. You go beyond that, you go over that threshold. We're going to, if you prescribe to Hans Selye's work on the general adaptation syndrome, you get into an exhaustive um, state where the body just can't handle and the organism breaks down. And that's when we see burnout, injury, and all these type of things. But, you know, training... Ideally, with an athlete, the majority of the stress we place upon their body and their the organism, the human as a whole, would be training load because that then we get we put most of the resources to improving those physical qualities. But the thing is, our athletes are not robots; they're very much human, so they still experience the same emotional stress, life stresses that we all do. You know, they get into rows with their families; they have relationship problems. They some have financial worries, and some just have life stress so we have all these different stresses from our career our relationships our life financial situation all these type of things that add in extra stresses onto the body so if they're always elevated they're always high that's eating into the amount of um, adaptive capacity we have for adaptation to training response so if they're high i like to sort keep life stresses low or lower life stresses that's going to improve our chances to possibly adapt to training so they're going to always be your pillars of recovery. But then you have your other passive and active modalities of recovery. So these are things that people probably immediately start to think of. Your saunas, your ice baths, compression garments, all these type of things. So what's interesting about those, and it depends on how we define recovery, because recovery doesn't really have an agreed upon definition. Is it a return to baseline? Is it So if you train, you get worse or your performance gets worse. When you return to baseline, how you are beforehand, is that recovery? Potentially, but if we're making the argument that we want this super compensatory or positive effect, then unless they're better than the war before, then they're not fully recovered because you should recover to a new higher level. So just getting back to where you are technically could could be argued that that isn't recovery because you haven't actually recovered to your new normal as such. Mm. So, But whatever way you define it, what we tend to see is these methods of recovery that we often say an ice bath for example that will enhance recovery 
in if you define it as it gets you back to baseline quicker. So if you do a hard training session, say you are measuring your vertical jump and it's 30 centimeters. You do a hard training session, it goes down to 25 centimeters. Now, if you take an ice bath, maybe it takes 24 hours to get you back to 30 centimeters. You don't take an ice bath, it might take 48 hours. It might take an extra 24 hours before you get back there. So the argument is, okay, ice baths allow you to recover quicker. But there's a trade-off there because generally how they work is they suppress the immune response to training, the inflammatory response. So we might see that might cause secondary muscle damage and all these types of things. The argument then, or what's interesting is in the short term, you recover quicker, but it seems to hinder adaptation in the long term. For example, we see that ice baths after resistance training allow you to recover quicker, but over six to eight weeks, those that engaged in the ice bath saw less strength and less hypertrophy than those who didn't. So generally what I recommend in the off season, I don't use any of these recovery methods. I don't use saunas, ice baths, any of these things. I allow the body to do its natural response and because I'm chasing adaptation, I, I want to get the best adaptation I can. So that's why I allow the body just to go through its full inflammation process, do what it needs to do. Now, in the in-season, when we're not chasing adaptations and we've just trained hard and we want our athletes as fresh as possible in two days' time to compete, then by all means, I'll put them into the ice baths because I don't care at that stage if they gain a little less muscle or strength over six or eight weeks, if it means that they've performed better than or as best as they could in the six or seven games that have taken place in that same period so i hope that makes sense so that's one thing that also changes between in-season and pre-season and it's um uh, this idea of recovery periodization essentially no perfect you explained it brilliantly um when we're talking about adaptations how does that occur from a physiological perspective what actually happens in the body for those adaptations to occur yeah, so it depends on the adaptation we're, we're chasing, of course. But as, as a general, I, I tend to view physical training in terms of, I think people start very much with the methods. People argue about, you know, what type of training is the best? Should we be doing 20-second sprints? You know, these, this sprint test, this work, they're, they're all methods. They're all tools where I much more like to look at a top-down approach. So when I... Um, programming at a, at a at the detail level in terms of what exercises I want and methods I want to use I often ask myself like okay what is the adaptation we are chasing so that might be hypertrophy increased maximal strength increased power increased aerobic capacity so once I frame that right in my head I was like okay this is the adaptation I'm chasing what principle do I need to put in place to chase that adaptation so for example hypertrophy if we want to increase muscle mass the principles that need to be in place is we need to have sufficient training volume. We need to have an, a stepwise increase in training volume. So you need to accumulate more volume over the course of a training block, ideally to increase hypertrophy. And we need high levels of muscular tension to do that. So that's, and then that simplifies, okay, for my given athlete, for this resources I have and the scenario I'm in, what method is best to, um, apply the principles that are needed to drive the adaptation so for hypertrophy ideally i'm going to have my athletes in a gym lifting moderate to high loads for moderate to high volumes so you know what i mean they're going to be lifting 70 to 80 percent one rm 
and somewhere within that kind of 6 to 15 rep range. That's ideally what we're going to do. Now, the problem is, if you only think about the methods, you say, okay, if you only view hypertrophy as, oh, that's 6 to 15 reps, you know, high weight, you go into lockdown, such as we're in now, all of a sudden you don't have access to those weights. And you, if you don't understand the, how to drive an adaptation, you're automatically curbs like, okay, my athletes don't have that, where I can step back say, okay, what's the adaptation? Hypertrophy. The principle is volume and muscular tension. How can I in, do muscular tension? Well, I can go, I know that going from proximity to failure will lead to high degrees of muscular tension. I know that I can use blood flow restriction training, so I can still use light loads, but manipulate rep ranges, manipulate external factors such as that to apply the same principles to drive the adaptation that I can. So that's an important concept to get that you shouldn't think in terms of methods. You should always think in terms of what is the adaptation, what is the principle needs to be applied, and then the methods are limitless. You're only um, you're only capped by your creativity when it comes to the methods. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about adaptations. So your adaptations are the top level stuff. So hypertrophy, aerobic capacity, power. All these are the adaptations we're looking to occur. Now, how they occur at a fundamental level is we all have a certain, what would you say, ability in all those um, adaptations or all those traits. We all have a certain degree of muscle, muscle mass. We all have a certain degree of strength. We all have a certain aerobic capacity. Now, if we just go about our daily lives, we'll likely maintain those um, capacities. They'll just stay in around the same and gradually decline as we age. We'll see them all as we get into our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond, we'll see a steady decline in those um, those traits. So as you get older, your aerobic capacity goes down, your muscle mass goes down, your strength goes down until you eventually die, essentially. Now, that's if we just go about and do nothing. How we improve those adaptations and drive those adaptations is through the application of specific stressors. So we need to put a specific stress. So we have this idea of the SED principle that our bodies and SED stands for specific adaptation to impose demands. So our bodies will adapt in a specific way in response to a specific stressor that we put on the body. So let's take aerobic capacity. We might, we all have a certain level of fitness. If we don't do anything about it, it's going to stay the same and, and slowly decline over life. Now, if you want to improve it, you put stressors on the body. So that's where you go out for a run. Now, all of a sudden, the body is experiencing external stress and energy demand, essentially, that all of a sudden it's been asked to, for a sustained period of time, it's been asked to you know, keep these muscles working, keep a certain contraction rate and velocity with a force demand. Each run has a certain force demand, and that requires a certain amount of blood flow, a certain amount of oxygen everything, and fuel to be delivered to the working muscles. Now, you do that at a certain intensity for a certain amount of time, you, if you just do it for a few seconds, okay, the body had a little bit of a stressor, but it wasn't tasked. You know, it, it didn't stress the body to above the level that it's able to handle. Now, all of a sudden, you do that for a bit longer and a bit harder, and you go above this homeostasis, essentially. So our bodies are at this state of homeostasis that all the internal environment of the body, it's pretty stable, everything's working nice, all of a sudden you put in this stressor and that's where we get we want to get to a level of homeostatic disruption and that is where the amount of stress we're placing on the body disrupts the internal environment that the internal environment is placed under a lot of stress 
and has to work at a higher level than it is used to in its normal everyday life. Now you get that stressor at the right level, you go too hard too quickly, you break down and you get injured. You don't do enough, um, you don't put enough stress on the body, it's, it's no reason the body doesn't, isn't under pressure, it doesn't need to adapt. You get in the sweet spot where it's not too much, you're challenging the body but you're not breaking it, all of a sudden you lead to this homeostatic disruption, you put an external stressor on the body, you then see a cascade of um, usually metabolic pathways kick off. This kicks off cascade, and it depends on uh, what stressor. If it's muscular tension that you're putting on through heavy resistance training, we'll see something called the uh, mTOR, so the mammalian target of rapamycin. That pathway gets activated. When that pathway gets activated, that sends off um, a myriad of reactions that reduce uh, that results in an increase in muscle protein synthesis and an increase and recruitment of increased muscle tissue over time. You keep applying that stress at a higher and higher level because as you get better, what your new normal is, is at an elevated level. So it's going to take a higher level of stress to cause the same level of disruption within the body. So you keep doing that higher and same with aerobic capacity. Um, your main pathway is probably going to be your PGC1 alpha, it's called pathway. You put the aerobic stress and then all of a sudden you see, um, as I said, this myriad of reactions go off and that's when you see the adaptations that facilitate increased performance. So if the rope capacity, that's where you see an increased ability of the heart to circulate blood around the body. It can pump out more blood per minute, a higher volume of blood. You see angiogenesis happen. So we see increased capillarization. You start to grow new capillaries in the muscle because more capillaries you have, the more it's essentially um, if you had a, a waterbed and you had pricked a hole in it, so let's see let's see your bedroom as the muscle and the waterbed is the artery supplying blood to the muscle. If you have one hole pricked in the waterbed, yeah, you know, the blood is coming out at a nice rate, it's feeding into the muscle. Now if you train, what you're essentially doing is pricking more holes in that waterbed. You're building more capillaries, more little holes that you can force blood through. And all of a sudden if you if your goal is to fill that room with as much water as you can you're better off having a hundred pricks and holes in the waterbed than just one to force the, the blood through. Um, so I hope that makes sense, but that's essentially what you're doing. Your adaptations come from applying a certain amount of stress on the body that is above the level of normal stress that it sustains on a daily basis. So all we're ever doing is with S and C with strength training, with um, fitness training as a whole, we're stress, we're applying stresses. And it's the nature, the type of distress, along with the amount, the volume, the intensity, how hard that stress is, and the frequency, how often we apply that stress. It's the um, interaction of those factors, the manipulation of those factors, then that will lead to and will cause the specific adaptation, depending on what type of stress you're applying, how much of it, how often, and how intense it is. You manipulate those and you decide what adaptation you want and you manipulate those factors then to drive the adaptation that you desire. Brilliant. That's a really, really good, clear, concise explanation. I think it made, it's probably, arguably, probably the, the best explanation that I've ever heard in, in terms of trying to simplify the the complexity that is the, the adaptation process. Um, so you've got a lot of stuff going, a lot of balls up in the air. How are you, from a routine standpoint, able to do so much 
things and, and still make and make progress. So I wanted to touch on sort of the first couple of hours of the day and the last couple of hours of the day specifically. So what does the first one to sort of three hours of your day look like? Um, generally, if I'm being honest, my one first first couple of hours in the morning, generally not, not that taxing in terms of I tend to work much better into the evening and the afternoon. So my mornings very much is get up, you know what I mean? I'll, uh, yeah, I'll have a quick look through my emails and if there's anything urgent, I'll reply to it at that stage. But generally, my mornings are quite relaxed where I'll focus on just, um, I enjoy my coffee, so I'll brew a, a nice a nice coffee. Might sit down, watch maybe potentially a bit of television, read, um, uh, or respond to social media messages or something like that. I generally won't put anything too cognitively tat. Um, heavy within the mornings and even if I, I need if I if it's a particularly busy week where I need to get work done pretty much from when I get up each morning I'll put the more mundane routine tasks first thing in the morning the likes of replying to emails um, the likes of if it's you know creating databases creating spreadsheets that type of stuff stuff that from a decision decision making and problem solving perspective isn't that difficult for me they tend to be um, my mornings because as I said I just I'm more I find myself the creative juices and my decision making ability is far superior in the afternoon and into the evening and night than it tends to be in the morning for me um, and I suppose that reflects in I, I usually train in the afternoon and evening then as well I wouldn't be a person for training in the morning so yeah generally mornings are time more so for uh, I like I've, I've heard the term kind feeding the subconscious so this idea that say you're you're doing certain tasks and we've always been there where you know we're trying to solve a problem or even as simple as you'll often have times where you can't think of someone's name or you can't think of the name of a certain song and if you sit there and think about it it just won't come to you you go off and you do something completely unrelated that's stupid essentially you allow the brain just to relax the subconscious to work away and then all of a sudden for no reason it comes to you and you aren't even thinking about it and that for me i think is important i like very much to switch off in the mornings and this idea of feeding the subconscious so even and that could be looking at you know funny videos or documentaries that are i very much think too many people stay too much within their own field in terms of if i'm a strength and conditioning coach too many people all they read and all they watch pertains to snc the sports science whatever it may be where i think that's a mistake where the mornings I, I might watch a documentary on something completely unrelated you know that but i'm always able to draw ideas and concepts from other fields and i think that's an important lesson that you should be able to look at the field of engineering look at the fields of astrophysics medicine whatever it may be and you can always pull and draw lessons from those fields and even it might be obvious to you at the time but over time if you get used to reading areas that are outside your scope new areas to you watching these documentaries or even something like playing computer games or something like this you're allowing your brain to relax take in information at a subconscious level from different fields and i think over time this idea of feeding your subconscious that then has a subsequently positive benefit in your decision making and the work you do within your actual um, field and again i'm no psychologist i i don't understand any theory behind it it, it could be all complete bullshit but it's something that, for me, I find that it works quite well. And 
I suppose that's when I do my consultancy work, that's one of the unique things I tend to bring to businesses I work with where they might have a product or their software. And one of the values that I tend to bring is, oh, have you ever thought about the applications this product has in that domain? And it might be a field that they've never thought about before. And they're like, a lot of people will have, say, their sports science tech. And I'll say, okay, it actually have a really cool application in this niche of medicine or this specific um, clinical population. And it's and they, it's because they've often pigeonholed themselves into just this one mentality to sports science where if you're well-read and well-versed in a lot of different areas, um, you can start to see the connections of where it has potential uses in other areas. And then from just a sociopathic level, I think it's always useful to have a little bit of knowledge in a lot of fields because it allows you to strike up a common conversation and rapport with pretty much anyone you meet. And if you know a little bit about a lot, you can pass yourself off as much more intelligent than you actually are and uh, bluff your way through a lot of social scenarios. Um, but yeah, that's generally what my mornings tend to look like. I um, yeah, I guess it goes back to what we spoke about with with sports about trying different sports and you're you're allowing your brain and ability to relax and in, just enjoy the moment. Whereas perhaps from a subconscious level, you're learning other skills that you might apply on your sport. They um, there's a book I can't remember the exact book, but it basically just discusses the act of people that are generalized will always do better than people that are specialized in something. So rather than being laser focused in one field, they're able to bring a lot of different thought processes, a lot of different philosophies from other areas into that field that the person that might be specialized wouldn't normally think of it because it's not quote unquote textbook. Yeah, 100% agree. And what does the, the back end of your day look like? How are you sort of optimizing that, that sleep and that recovery? Yeah, so um, the evenings, I tend to try wind down in the last hour or so b before bed. So that's kind of when you're taking out as much light as you can. If you're using phones or screens, you're using night mode as such. And then generally just um, engaging in conversation. Um, I have, say, my um, girlfriend, Isha, the last thing you do in the evenings, like have a proper conversation, kind of, I suppose, from a certain it's a kind of like a brain dump essentially you see people will brain dump into a journal but say I, i'd brain dump to her as such and um oftentimes i am very fortunate to have her i must say that i'll brain dump it mightn't even be of interest to her <laughs> but um often it's and even that i think it's, it's a good exercise to get in because we, we all are emotionally invested in our own thoughts and thought processes where it's always good to have someone evaluate your thoughts from an external factor and i think we all need each will have no problem calling me on my bullshit we all need someone that will do that will tell you when you're being wrong and allowing your own say ego or something to drive decisions rather than your rationality so i think that's that's important um in terms of sleep like sleep quality is very important i think people often just view sleep in terms of the amount of hours you're in bed but you can have people two people are in bed for eight hours each one is a deep sleep for the whole night, the other is tossed and turn a very disrupted sleep. So I think that's important to have kind of assess your sleep hygiene. And from a practical perspective, it's, it's well, from a theoretical perspective, it's very easy. From a practical perspective, it's a bit tougher. So you want to cut out all caffeine at least six to eight hours before um, bedtime, no caffeine coming in. Ideally, cut out um, backlit devices one to two hours before bed. You want to have your room cool, not too hot, not too cold, more so towards the cool side. 
and then you want to have the room as dark as possible. Um, and then outside that, ideally you want a set sleep structure where you're kind of going to bed and getting up at the same time each day and even on the weekends because we do have a phenomenon we tend to see is social jet lag, it's called, where people will be groggy Monday and Tuesday because Friday, Saturday and Sunday night, they stayed out late, you know, they might have had a few drinks, their rhythm has very much changed and then it takes them a couple of days to get back to a normal rhythm. So you'll often see people very groggy in that Monday morning, which is kind of concept of social jet lag, essentially. That's just been a shift in the sleeping patterns. So that's um, generally how I try to optimize my sleep. There, another argument can be made then for potentially taking a hot shower half an hour before bed, if sleep is something you struggle with, can be something that um, uh, can be beneficial then possibly then as well. No, perfect, I love all those, I love all those tips. Is there a specific book or a particular book that you've read? It could be recently, it could be the last sort of five years that's had a profound effect on your life. It could be in the health space, fitness space, SNC space, or just even just general life space. Something that you might have read that you recommend people should check out? Yeah, there's a great book that I was very fortunate to um, read, I believe, my first year of my undergrad. And I think it very much has shaped a lot. So I, I have a gripe with suppose humanity as a whole but it's not it's not humanity's fault it's not it's like very much i think a lot of um problems and issues in the world needs to be viewed through a socioeconomic lens we're very quick to blame and label people as idiots or misguided or wrong but a lot of time it's not their fault per se they're a product of their socioeconomic background and everything like that and you know depending on it, it's true depending on where you're born and the people you come up around with, that's going to have a profound effect on how you view the world and the behaviours you engage in. But one of the big things I think is lacking, even if people get educated to a high level, is critical thinking. And critical thinking, I don't think is taught well enough in science degrees or any degree at all, because you see people just, and myself included, a lot of time, there is a distinct lack of the ability to critically evaluate and appraise claims and information. And I think if, people were much better of it, it would save a lot and stop a lot of the issues we see in the world, um, especially on social media. Like you go into any social media thread and you will see a lack of critical thinking all over the place. People are fueled by pure emotional response rather than the rationality. And I came across this book, it was gifted to me, um, Ben Goldacre is the author and it's called Bad Science. And essentially what he does it in a very accessible way, like they're, it's not a book that you need to have academic training to read. Anyone can read it. It's wrote in a lighthearted and humorous way. But Ben Goldacre is a medical journalist. And what the whole book essentially does is look at the concept of critical thinking and pure evaluation of um, science and poor scientific methods and studies. Um, so, But it does it through a series of case studies. So it'll talk about different events where you know, this was a study and this is how it was portrayed in the media and these are the consequences of it. But if we dig into it, this is why it was wrong. This is the... And just he critically appraises all these scenarios in a very lighthearted, accessible and humorous way. But what you do, if you read that book, at the end of it, it does a, a throughout it, it does a great job of explaining the scientific method and explaining research methodology. And for the layperson they will 
after reading that book, you'll enjoy it. Um, you'll have a great time reading it, but you will come out more than likely with a greater appreciation of what the scientific method is, how research studies are carried out and how they should be carried out, and also how to critically evaluate claims that you see given out by companies, by the media, because it does a great job showing that this was the study, these were the results, but these were the claims that were made by the company and or the media. And looking at the disconnect of between the source material and the end product that's given to the at a population level through the media and through advertising. So I think if everyone was to read that book and everyone had a greater ability and just radar for a bullshit radar, essentially, that they can detect and critically evaluate claims better, I think that people would be much happier in their lives, fall for a lot less scams. See, I... I despise misinformation. So I despise people that put out wrong information. Now, there are two types of people generally that put out wrong information. One of them I don't have a problem with, and that is, I see it a lot in the fitness industry. It's young guys and girls that they believe what they are saying is true, and they believe that it's having a positive benefit for people. So these are putting out a message that they believe it's helping people. Factually, it might be wrong, but they're not deliberately putting out misinformation. They're just... Like, we're all ignorant until we know. Until we know something, we're ignorant about it. So we all have done this in the past. I don't have any issue with those people. Generally, those people, you just want to guide them towards the right educational sources that they can improve their own knowledge. The second type of people, they're the charlatans and the snake oil salesmen. They're the ones that they know what they are saying is wrong, but they say it regardless because they wish to profit off the back of it they wish to gain a monetary profit off the back of it now in life i tend to be a darwinist in terms of if people are idiots and they do stupid stuff mm, it's natural selection look you know what i mean it's kind of mm, fair enough you know you know these people that oh i got drunk and i thought it was a good idea to jump off the building or whatever it's like okay that part that's natural selection that's <laughs> that's nature taking care of itself or whatever it may be but and I tend to be the same. I tend to be kind of an economic Darwinist. Like, well, if someone was stupid enough to spend their money on stupid shit, that's fair enough. But what really gets my goat as such is when people put out misinformation and it's, it's really manipulative, you know, it's packaged, it's polished, it on the surface, it's like, it looks like it's coming from an authority figure. It looks to be legit. The buy, and then people who, I realize when people that, you know, they're not economically well off. They don't have a lot of disposable income. They're struggling from paycheck to paycheck. They're, you know, they're trying to support their family and they're spending their whole life really stressed out and worrying about bills and never have money. But we'll see certain advertisers, certain people prey on those people's emotional insecurity, such as we see with like weight loss, um, relationships, stuff, this type of stuff, those pain points that are very easy to emotionally manipulate people into buying a product when the salesperson knows full well that that product will not have a positive benefit to that person's life. So that really annoys me is when people are manipulative with their misinformation in order to sell a product to people that really can't afford it and then don't even benefit from that product. Mm. They're the type of people that um, really annoy me. So I think the lessons from the book can help people better identify and spot those type of individuals and scenarios. Yeah, and as you said, especially in today's social media world, it's necessary more than ever i guess to have content like like ben goldacre's putting out to help people have the necessary level of knowledge to go okay i i 
I'm armed with my bullshit detector. You can't sort of sell me on this absolute crap. And at least if you try to, I can ask the necessary questions to to get myself out of this situation. Hundred mm, percent. I mean, what is um, what's twenty twenty got in store for you? What's the rest of the year got in store? What are you working on? Anything exciting coming up? God knows it's a lot of uncertainty at the moment yeah. I think across all fields in terms of the research end of stuff so I work predominantly with human intervention trials so I very much doubt we'll be able to get any um, humans into the lab in 2020 so my research has gone more towards data analysis and some review papers some um, systematic reviews around the concepts of um, weight cutting for strength sports and then also this idea of heterogeneity of response and a doing some projects around the concept of recovery and writing a, a paper on all these, as I said earlier, you know, defining recovery, what is it, and all these nuances of recovery periodization. So that's from an academic perspective, I suppose, what's coming. In terms of outside that, we have some projects. Um, we have um, some short um, courses coming up through Synapse Performance for anyone involved in field-based sports, so both nutrition and S&C courses coming up there. So those projects are underway. I'd be excited to get those out. Um, and other than that, the big projects I have is in terms of AppLift, it's an exciting time for us. We have some exciting partnerships to announce coming up soon and some exciting developments to the software. So I suppose personally what I'd like to do with the rest of 2020 is obviously continue to help people through the educational content we put out. But I would very much like to start to consult a bit more and get involved with more any exciting companies that are starting up in kind of the sports tech and sports science world. No, really, mate. And lastly, where can sort of people reach out, find out what you're up to and what you're doing? Yeah, so everything can be found through the website, essentially, um, www.synapseperformance.ie. Um, I, if you're looking to follow me on social medias, Instagram's probably the best place, at Synapse Performance there. And if you ever want to reach out to me personally, just drop me a DM, uh, request form through the website, or my email address is david at synapseperformance.ie. Beautiful. And all those will be linked in the show notes below as always. And David, thank you so much for joining us to the show today. It was a pleasure, Abby. Thank you very much.